Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. We've got a wonderful show lined up for you today. Dr. Alex McFarland is going to be joining me in just a minute. And then Dr. Heather Holloman will be on the program in hour two. Got Dr. Phil Collins talking about his uh, Bible that he edited, which is an amazing Bible called Abide. And then Dr. Rebecca Ree. So it's Dr. 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 And you got me, who's a solid C student. Pray for me. I'm going to need all the help I, I can get today. My first guest is, of course, a regular, Dr. Alex McFarlane. He's an apologist, an author. He is uh, the all-around great guy. Alex, welcome. Well, it's good to be with you, Bill. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I would like to chat about a couple of things today. Will the Holy Spirit continue to lead you if you continue to sin? Uh, Well, I think the Holy Spirit will try. Uh, The more we sin, the harder our heart gets, and Mm -hmm. then we just can't hear the Holy Spirit. So... Uh, I would say the time to yield to the promptings of the Holy Spirit is the minute you're cognizant of the fact that God's trying to get your attention. Mm-hmm. When I look at Romans 6.14, that sin shall not have dominion over you, we do have to kill sin as believers, don't we? We do. We do. Uh, you know, the Bible says that we are to be holy, for God is holy. It's interesting. Um you know, all these admonitions, whether it's in the Gospels or in, like, First Peter, to be holy. I, I looked into that one time, Bill, because it's like, well, you know, I can't be as holy as God. Although, you know, positionally we are the minute you trust Christ, the righteousness of Christ is yours. So in the eyes of the Father, the believer is, you know, declared righteous. But this is so cool. So I looked up the word holy where Jesus says, you know, be holy, be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And it's it's a word, teleos, mm. uh, which means design or purpose. I mean, think about this. As a Christian, to walk according to God's Word and to yield to the Holy Spirit and to be, you know, an obedient disciple. In other words, when it says be holy, it means be in the design. In other words, for a believer, which is to be more and more and more Christ-like. All of that to say this, Bill, when the Christian is defeated by sin, when the Christian is ensnared by habitual disobedience, that really brings them depression and defeat. That's not the design. The design, the teleos for a Christian is to be joyful, progressing, always growing in the Lord, And so when God says, be holy, and yeah, yield to the Holy Spirit, um, God's really calling us to holiness out of love, because it's for our benefit to be what he designed us to be, which is fruit-bearing, joyful, ever-maturing believers. Mm -hmm. Alex, how would you counsel someone to make intentionally make God-honoring choices? Oh, wow. Well... 
Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, and by the way, I'm so glad, what a joy, Bill, to speak with you every other oh, week. Oh, thank you, I Alex. Do. Yeah, no, joy's but mine. I, I have such respect for you, Bill. You are such a blessing to me, and I listen, you know, sometimes online. I know you're a blessing to all the, the listeners in your in your oh, region there. I hope. But you're in the book of Romans, you know. In Romans chapter 7, Paul lamented, you know, that the, the flesh— arm wrestles against the Spirit. Paul said, that which I don't want to do, I do, and that which I do want to do, I don't do. Who's going to deliver me from this wretched body of death? Um, let's say you've got two two dogs in the backyard. The one that you feed is the one that's going to have the dominant. Mm-hmm. If you feed the flesh or feed the Spirit, and the way you feed the Spirit is through prayer and and Scripture. I mean, really, and We're, so oh. that the victory is 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 in feeding the spiritual nature that's in us. At Bible study this morning, the the men's group I'm in, we were talking about, and I was mentioning to the guys that when when a call comes into my my head, I've got two options. I can either have the spirit take the call or the flesh take the call. And if the flesh takes the call, usually the, the result isn't very good. And if the spirit takes the yeah. call, I'm going to probably be uh, making a God-honoring choice. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like anything, we have to establish habits. And I, I don't want to reduce our Christian walk to the physical because, you know, it is the work of the Holy Spirit in us, but... um Psychologists talk about establishing neural pathways, you know, in our brain. And, you know, even psychologists don't completely understand the overlap of the the mind and the will. Uh, But look, as we establish habits, it's easier and easier to keep those habits. Hardest thing, just like, uh, you know, I was reading that it takes hundreds of pounds of pressure per square inch to get a locomotive rolling. Mm-hmm. But it, it only takes a few dozen pounds of pressure per square inch to keep a locomotive rolling. Hardest part is overcoming inertia and to get the locomotive rolling. Look, it's hard to start something new, but as we establish patterns and habits, and, and let me just say, make it a habit to go to church and be in God's house on Sunday morning. Make it a habit to read a daily devotional and begin your day with prayer. And and I know it's not easy, just like starting an exercise regime or, you know, earning a degree or going back to school. Make it a habit to love the people around you that are not very lovable. And, and just admit every single day we need the power of God to help us do these things. Well, Alex, studying the Word, fellowship, prayer, these are the, our sources of joy. Why would we? Why do you think we would consider them to be, you know, something that would be challenging for us to do regularly? Wouldn't we go? I cannot wait to get back to this prayer, to this study, to this fellowship, Amen. because the joy that it brings into my heart is just so amazing. I, I know. Well, very often we we fall for the the lies and the lures that Satan dangles in front of us. But I, I do want to say this, Bill. Um, The message of salvation is a message, yes, of 
put your faith in Jesus and you'll go to heaven, not hell. But the the message of the gospel is also a message uh, to come and every day of your life be a, a disciple of Jesus. And I think in American Christianity, um, we, we've only really given people half the message sometimes. We'll say, trust Jesus and you'll be forgiven and saved. Yeah, that's true. But it also means, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, every day I die. I die daily. I take up my cross. I follow him. So if we're going to accept the privilege of sonship, we also must accept the responsibility of discipleship. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that uh, response, Alex. Thank you so much for that. Um, what do you mean when we hear the, wor- the word world, world view? What, do you, yeah. what does that mean to you? Well, um, two, two things, scripturally and culturally. Okay. I mean, scripturally, I think of Colossians 2.8 that says, you know, see that you're not deceived by the basic rudiments of the world or the b- basic viewpoints of the world. You know, don't be taken captive by false beliefs. But in a cultural sense, worldview is how you look at reality. Um, there was a very famous book several years ago by James Sire, S-I-R-E, James Sire, called The Universe Next Door. And um, I think the, the book by Sire, I know that really got the attention of Chuck Colson and a lot of people, and it was kind of one of the books that introduced people to worldview. But I want to give you James Sire's definition. He said, a worldview is a set of assumptions which you hold about the basic makeup of the world. But I want to give you the fine print he put in there. Listen to this, folks. Sire says a worldview is a set of assumptions, which may be true, may be partially true, might be entirely false, which you hold consistently or inconsistently, consciously or subconsciously, about the basic makeup of the world. Now, your worldview is, uh, do you believe there's a God? Yes or no. Uh, Do you believe there's moral truth? Are there some things absolutely wrong and some things that are absolutely right? Uh, What about responsibility? Uh, Am I, you know, accountable to God and I am, you know, accountable to live right? Or am I just a victim who can blame my deviant behavior on my circumstances? Uh, Worldview speaks to marriage and family. Uh, government, being a citizen. So really, we as Christians are to have a scripturally informed worldview. And I think part of the reason that our country is suffering right now is because there's a lot of people that, um, you know, yeah, they put their faith in Jesus, but they don't have a biblically informed worldview. Mm. I'd like to talk about that a little bit more and a little bit. I've got a question about the cultural worldview as well. When we come back, Dr. Alex McFarlane is my guest and my friend. AlexMcFarlane.com is his website. Learn all about Alex there, his books, his writing, his blogging, his online videos, everything. It's all over there. AlexMcFarlane.com. Be right back.
It is 17 minutes after the hour, and it's, what is it, February 5th? It's starting to finally feel like winter in the great state of Minnesota. It is chilly out there. Dr. Alex McFarland is my guest. You can go to alexmcfarland.com to learn more about Alex. So, Alex, when we talk about a cultural worldview, the speed at, w- at which things change and words that change meaning, how do you keep up with all of it? I mean, if I don't agree with you, I can just call you a liar now. Yeah, it's it's a tough time we live in, and in many ways, it's a, a unique, unprecedented time because what I mean, there's always been, oh, you know, uh, government, uh, you know, one party versus another party, but in the Western world, uh, we've always believed that there was a moral common ground. And let me just say this. When we talk about morals, we often think about right and wrong. You know, you should, you should not lie. You should not murder. But with the Judeo-Christian worldview and what Romans you know, 2.14 talks about, the Gentiles that didn't have the law of God had the law written on their heart. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows right from wrong. But look, with moral law, that was also what was called natural law. Uh, the birds and the bees, and men are men, women are women, babies are made a certain way, and uh, we had, you know, natural law. Well, nowadays, Bill, what's so amazing and frankly dangerous about the times in which we live is now people in great seats of authority, whether it's a professor at a college, uh, a, a, an elected official in Washington, or, you know, a, a pundit writing, you know, in the newsroom, nowadays, masses of people the world over not only deny any moral truth, but they deny natural law. Um, In fact, uh, just focus on the family, Jim Daly, who Jim Daly's a fine Christian man, but uh, he's a very nice person, and he's, he's not really as forceful as Dr. Dobson was. Jim Daly, if if ever there was a diplomatic, polite, kind person, Jim Daly is that. And Twitter banned Jim Daly and Focus on the Family because he said something like, uh, a man is a man and males and females are different. I mean, something as innocuous as that, to say that males and females are different, you know, Twitter um, put a hold on their account. Now, um, cultural worldview, what makes this such a dangerous time and a time that, Bill, apart from a a spiritual revival and, frankly, some moral courage, um, without this, we're going to descend further and further into really chaos. Uh, we, without truth, I mean, if if nothing is true objectively, if everybody just makes up their own truth, well, my goodness, uh, there's nowhere to go but down. And so what, what makes this period of history different, Bill, is that there was a time when even non-Christians admitted there were objective moral truths that we're all accountable to. And right now, my goodness, I hundreds of people a week contact our ministry, and they tell these horror stories of going to state universities, and their students are just marginalized, 
prevented from graduating. I mean, if you don't get in line with the homosexual, transgender, relativistic worldview, you can't play. And and the the precondition for even being able to operate in society is fast becoming that you deny truth. Where this is going to go for the church and for great entities like Faith Radio, I, I don't know. But, Bill, apart from a revival, um, we could be looking at the criminalization of Christianity. Mm-hmm. I mean, do they want to stop there, or do they want you to uh, vocalize untruths? Oh, they want, they want us to vocalize. It's not enough to tolerate. Mm-hmm. You have to affirm. And that's why... I don't mean to be doom and gloom. You know, I'm a happy camper. You know, I belong to Christ, and there's great joy in that. But I am a realist. And, you know, traveling as I do, and, uh, you know, I was on Fox News a couple of years ago with a person that, um, not not all that, you know, well-known of an individual, but a person that was, um, you know, part of the Democrat Party. And during all the commercial breaks, the, this person would lean across to me across the desk, we were in New York City, and just, you know, inches away from my face, say, you know, curse words and and look at me and said I was a wingnut, a Hmm. wingnut. Why? Because I believe uh, that males are males and females are females. I believe that a genetic XY chromosome male can't transition into being a female. If I'm a wingnut, then so was you know, Moses, Abraham, Aristotle, Aquinas, Augustine, Mother Teresa, Benjamin Franklin, the Wright brothers, Abraham Lincoln, and uh, a certain Jesus of Nazareth, you know? Mm-hmm. But <laughs> we're living in a time when those of us who believe in moral truth are, are being marginalized as haters and as the Democrat person said to me on Fox News, wingnut. Well, if I'm a wingnut, so be it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's kind of hard to deny human biology. Yeah, I think Jim Daly was referring to Dr. Rachel Levine, who is um, Mm -hmm. the Assistant Secretary for Health at the Department of Health and Human Services. And he said that Dr. Levine is a transgender woman. That is a man who believes he is a woman. And according to Mm -hmm. Twitter, uh, you know, acknowledging a biological fact is now hateful. Yeah, hate speech. It's hate speech. I don't know, yeah. Alex, if you've seen Cece Telfer. She's a, um, a transgender, a, a, a biological male that is now identified as a transgender woman uh, running in uh, collegiate track races, you know, 300th in the, in the men's division, and now it's, it, there's no contest. Uh, the victories yeah. are they're not, they're not even close. Um, well, uh, yeah, and a lot of uh, about a year ago, Martina Navratilova, the tennis star, who, you know, was a trailblazer, I suppose you could say, in coming out as a lesbian. Well, Martina Navratilova a year ago said in the press that, you know, she didn't believe in transgenderism, that, you know, men and women are two different um, doctors would say biological categories, philosophers would say ontological categories, Um a man and a woman are different. And, oh, my goodness, the the LGBTQ trans 
lobbies just crushed on Martina Navratilova and said, you know, you're you're um, homophobic, transphobic. And she was like, me? I was, look, I was for gay rights before any of you all were at the party. But yet nowadays there is such a push. And, and the reason, Bill, is this, because deep down, you know, I'm going to say this as a counselor and as a pastor, people are demanding legitimization for what deep in their soul they know is wrong. Mm. Now, I want to say this, whether a person is a promiscuous heterosexual or a confused homosexual or transgender, well, God loves you, and there is life and restoration in Jesus. Repent of sin, turn to Christ. But what we're witnessing is a culture, it's it's like the child having a tantrum they know they're in the wrong, they're conflicted about it, but for the moment, they're having a tantrum demanding that you acknowledge the situation. Um, but individuals, because God is still God, truth is still truth, we dare not as a culture, and certainly the church should not as the representatives of the gospel on earth, we, we must not capitulate to a world that for the moment is deeply drinking the Kool-Aid of, of darkness. Mm-hmm. My wingman Terry sent me the passage from John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. So I think Christians need to be prepared for lots of persecution ahead. Yeah. And keep praying for revival and keep, you know, that that's why, for what it's worth, you know, people like myself, everybody from Chuck Colson to Summit Ministries, Josh McDowell, Norm Geisler, Lee Strobel, you know, we've written all these books on worldview and apologetics, at least on the intellectual side, to try to equip the church to cogently respond to that which is false. Mm-hmm. Because, look. It's a spiritual battle. Uh, John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, destroy. Satan is the thief, the liar, the murderer. But Jesus has come to give life. And whoever calls in the name of Jesus can and will be saved. And so we've got to just keep praying and proclaiming and knowing that God is in control and truth will prevail. I'm glad we ended with a solid biblical promise. Thank you, Alex. Bill, you're wonderful, my Thank you. friend. I'm so, so honored to know you. Thank you so much. Dr. Alex McFarland has been my guest. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, Dr. Heather Holloman will be joining us. Can't wait. Be right back. presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Heather Holloman is going to be joining me in just a minute. She's written a new book called Scent, Living a Life that Invites Others to Jesus. 
Heather. She's a director of crew at Penn State and has written a number of books, Chosen for Christ, Guarded by Christ, Seated with Christ. And this is her latest book called Sent, Living a Life that Invites Others to Jesus. Heather, welcome back. Hi, Bill. It's so good to be on your show again. Thank you so much. Now, did you uh, write this with uh, Ashley? I did. I wrote this with my husband. We survived. It wasn't as bad as I thought it would be, uh-huh. writing with your spouse. Yeah. He was great. He took, he, you know, I, I set up assignments for him at the coffee shop. He finished all of his deadlines. It was perfect. Good for it was him. perfect. Good for him. So let's start with just finding out what it means to live a, a scent life. What does that mean? Well, living a scent life means that you embrace your biblical identity that Jesus is sending you. It's part of who you are. And for so long, I thought evangelism, you know, telling people about Jesus, I thought it was like guilt or duty or so much about me needing more training. And then this year I thought, no, Jesus sends us. It's the number one way Jesus describes the Father in the book of John. So by the time you get to John 20, where Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. So Mm. it's about knowing you're sent wherever you are. Interesting. So we don't have to sit and tell God that we have to be more ready before you send me. We just have to be obedient. Yes, and it's just part of who you are. And and it's as natural as, you know, eating breakfast or brushing your teeth. It's just a core part of your identity in Christ. And the one thing I realized, because I love organizing Scripture to help me figure out how to live my life, as I looked through the Bible, I was like, okay, God is always at work to draw people to himself. He's using people to lead others to Jesus, and he's continually inviting all believers into this work. And it just got me so excited. You think of the Great Commission, but there's also that beautiful part where you hear Jesus say, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. I just get so excited about that. I do, too. So if you're being sent out by Jesus, you don't have to fear so much about rejection or or worry that people are going to be offended. You just you just follow what God has called you to do. Yes, and it's about living such a life of adventure and joy with Jesus because you know this is what he's doing. So he sends you out, and the position of your heart is, Lord, send me to be an agent of blessing and proclamation, just that you see the people in your life who don't know Jesus as placed there by God, and you're supernaturally in their life. And so every interaction is this opportunity to experience how God could use you. And I, I loved exploring just the metaphors in the New Testament for how to see yourself. You know, I'm big into professional development. I want to know my job description. And I love how Jesus, as you read the New Testament, you really, in any situation, could see yourself as a farmer, a fisherman, an ambassador, or a royal priest. Mm-hmm. So I spend a lot of time thinking about my job description as I'm sent into the lives of people. So, Heather, I know listeners are... are hearing this, thinking, convince them that, and to, so they can believe that God has sent them? Well, first of all, we know that God's at work, so he is drawing people to himself. That's yes. what people need to first realize. That's the core principle of my life, that we know that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That's Luke 19. We know that that's what Jesus is still doing, which, of course, raises the question, you know, we could immediately be sanctified and go into heaven into eternity. Why does God still leave us here? It's clear he's building a kingdom. We know God's using people. He could have used any other method, but we know God's using people. So think about Acts 1-8. I remember exactly where I was in the student union of University of Michigan when I read Acts 1-8, and it says you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. 
and you will be my witnesses. So, you know, I'm circling these things in the Bible and that we know that if you're a believer, we know in Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians that God is using you to spread the knowledge of him wherever you go. And then in Second Corinthians 5, you get that beautiful and very mysterious passage that God is using you as his ambassador, and he's making an appeal through you to other people. And, you know, there's all sorts of ways to think about the fruit you're going to bear. Ephesians 2, John 15, you know, he's appointed you for good fruit. So once you establish that, you cannot deny Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go. Go and make disciples. Now, theologically speaking, I really had to to question, okay, God, do you speak out the exact places where I live? Yes, Acts 17. Are you holding my life in your hands, you know, all of my ways? Is it possible that God has orchestrated you in your neighborhood, your workplace, you know, even if you go to the doctor or your dishwasher breaks down, to live a sent identity that the sovereign God of the universe is positioning people on a rescue mission? I mean, Bill, this has become so deep in my heart wow. that if I break a foot and I'm at the doctor, my first question is, okay, Lord, who here doesn't know you? The doctor might not know you. Or if my dishwasher breaks, it's not about the dishwasher. It's about the repairman. Does yeah. he know you? So life has become really exciting around here. And that makes me jump right to Chapter 8, Heather, where you talk about the easiest questions to ask. And this is a great lesson you can give uh, not only me, but all of our all of the listeners right now. And there's one particular yes. word which I can't wait for you to say. You mean about curiosity? Yep, Being that's curious it. About people? That's it. Yeah. <laughs> well... Curiosity, if you're listening, it's actually one of the most important key professional skills to develop. Being curious is also good for well-being. I quote a lot of research. You know, I love, I love, you know, I'm a scholar. I love looking at what all the research says. So developing curiosity as you, as you meet people, my first question to ask, even before you get into a spiritual conversation, is you can just say to, to people that you meet, I'm really excited to get to know you. And here's my favorite question, Bill. Look at them and say, what question do you like people to ask you about yourself? Wow. Do you not love that? It's so easy. You can start great friendships, and it's great for your dating relationships, for young people who want to know what to talk about when they go out. Just ask the person, what question do you like people to ask you? But over the years, I have four questions. They're called the four best questions that always lead to a great spiritual conversation. So the first one is this. So I'm walking a bunch of kids to school with their parents, and I, I was walking, and I'm with a woman who converted to Hinduism, and all I said was this. I turned to her, and I said, well, you know I'm a Christian. What does your tradition say about Jesus? And she said that single question sent her back to her house. What does my tradition say about Jesus? Who is he? That single question opened up a gospel presentation. She not only prayed to receive Christ, but she led her husband and two children to the Lord. And that's not a hard question. Just say, what does your tradition say about Jesus? Now, of course, she said, well, tell me more, you know, how do, what is, what do Christians believe about Jesus? And that led us to study the book of John together. And the book, we give you a lot of tips and skills that maybe you don't have, you know, how do I share the gospel with someone? But The second question is if someone's talking to you and maybe they're in distress or they're, you know, with the COVID-19 world, you're going to deal with a lot of loneliness, anxiety, uncertainty. If you turn to someone and say, the things you're talking about sound like spiritual problems to me. Do you consider yourself on a spiritual journey? And where are you on that journey? 
people will burst into tears. Mm. They might say, I can't believe you asked me that. I asked a student that who was crying one day. I said, it seems like you're, you're having a spiritual moment here. And she said to me, you know, I grew up, my mom and dad gave me a Bible and talked to me about Jesus. And when I got to college, I abandoned my faith and I need to come back just by asking her about that journey question. Now, the third question is so easy. Anyone can ask it, and it's one of my favorites. I just tell people, look, I'm in a fresh season of prayer. Do you have any prayer requests I might commit to pray for? Nobody has said no. Mm-hmm. People now want to be in my prayer journal. I have people that say, they call me Dr. H at Penn State, so they'll be like, Dr. H, you know I'm an atheist, but put me in that prayer journal. <laughs> and they'll come and they'll ask about my prayer life, and it opens up conversation. And then the last question, um, which is harder, so if you're listening and you're like, oh, I don't know if I could do this, my best question for evangelism that opens up so many doors is I'll walk into spaces where there are not believers, and just in the course of conversation, I will say, I just learned something really great in the Bible that's changing how I deal with, and then whatever it is God has been teaching you. I've had people who know nothing about the Bible, like I was... I literally walked into my office at Penn State. You know, I have an atheist office mate and then someone from a completely different, you know, different religious tradition who I walked in and I said, I'm really struggling with a lot of fear, like a spirit of dread with public speaking. And I was reading in the Bible, you know, just talking about what God's teaching me. I said, I was reading in the Bible about how God hasn't given me a spirit of fear. Mm -hmm. Well, the atheist turned to me and she just said, can you say that again? And I said, yeah, I, I, the Bible talks about not having a spirit of fear. And she said, what you just said, that spirit of fear, I have that. I know I have that. How do I get rid of that? And it just opened up the whole door. So we also, we encourage people to know, you know, how is God working? What are your top three stories of transformation and attach it to a Bible verse? Cause God's word is so powerful. It, it, it bears fruit. And so I know, are you inspired, Bill? Do you feel like you have all the tools you need? Well, I'm totally inspired. And it's, it's so simple. Everything you're sharing, Heather, is so simple. It is just, yes. you're weaving it into everyday conversation. You're yes. speaking truth and you're being curious yes. and being curious is never, ever a bad thing. No, it's wonderful. Actually, it's good for you. People who are curious are less trustful less angry, and less aggressive, according to the research on curiosity coming out of George Mason. And curiosity saves marriages, apparently, I'm reading. Just to position yourself, and if if you're wondering, you know, how do I really think about that biblically, you know, a lot of Philippians 2, if you think about taking the lowest place and be putting the interests of other people above yourself, how do you know what they are? How do you put the interests of someone above yourself if you're not even interested in their life at all? Mm-hmm. You know, it's a way of honoring people above yourself. So living a curious life will change everything. You just start asking people, and people are so lonely right now and so scared and, you know, distant from everyone that I've been, you know, doing kind of like a texting strategy Well, I'll text my professor friends and I'll say, I'm just really curious. How how has it been for you? What What's going on? And that usually that leads to the prayer requests, and usually that leads to them needing to talk and yeah. just being curious. Yes. Okay, Heather, i got a bunch more questions for you, but I do need to take a little break. Dr. Heather Holloman is my guest. Her book is called Scent, Living a Life That Invites Others to Jesus. She co-wrote it with her hubby, Ashley. We'll be right back.
in a special repeat performance. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Heather Holloman is my guest. Heather, I haven't spoken to you in a while. I forgot how good you are. This is really good, good <laughs> stuff. Really. I'm not, I'm not making any of this up. Well, I didn't forget how good you are. You're so great and have so much fun energy on the radio. It's always fun to listen to you. So I saw that I had you today, and I was like, yes, Bill Arnold, I got this. It was exciting. <laughs> All right. Talk about the easiest story to tell. All right. The easiest story to tell is, and it's the most important tool you have. It's the most important tool you can leverage in spiritual conversations, and that is your story of God at work in your life. And we encourage you to think of your top three stories of transformation because it moves like the the vague spiritual conversations you might have into these really practical, powerful moments with neighbors and coworkers when you say, look, this was who I was. And then I met Jesus. It's the way you first tell your story of meeting Jesus. And then what Bible verse did God use? What was it? How did, what came alive for you? And then I talk about telling stories of rescue, where God rescued. There's also stories of provision and stories of maturity. And I give examples of how you can tell them in two to three minutes in great conversation. So you set up your before scene, what your struggle was, how God met you, and the word, because I think God's word, you know, we learn in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Mm -hmm. The stories themselves are not what's powerful. It's that you're leading them to God's word and the Holy Spirit we pray makes it come alive to people. So it's great to use in groups. We've done it with Sunday school classes. We've done it with just small groups of people. Write down your stories of transformation. Go use them. Go use them in conversation. And it just becomes really easy. Um, I tell pretty regularly my story of God healing me from jealousy. And that's what the book Seated with Christ from Ephesians 2. But I know how to tell that story in two to three minutes. And so we really just challenge people. You know, it's really easy to do this. And remember, my husband, he co-wrote the book with me because he's an introvert who claims he does not have any gift of evangelism. And yet, by faith, he steps out of the house and in the power of the Holy Spirit, he just led our 85-year-old neighbor to Christ. Mm. So using stories, engaging him in good conversations, taking that step of faith to invite him out to coffee and begin asking curious questions. Oh, wow. That, it's, it's so strong to be reminded that it's got at work in your life. And you can tell your stories and be curious, and you can get someone's attention quickly, can't you? Yes. And then again, it just makes things really exciting. Your life will start to explode with that kind of worship and intimacy. A lot of Christians feel like bored or they have a lack of purpose or else they're living in real despair because of the times. They don't really know what they're supposed to be doing, you know, what what can they do? But this scent identity really gives them a way to think, okay, Jesus, I'm going to do this with you every day. This is who I am. This is who you made me to be. Let's go do this together. And you're going to start to have some really fun adventures, and that's what we have found. Okay, Heather, if we're going to invite people to a response, I, get, I guess that's when it gets really scary for a lot of people. Uh, would you like to have a begin a relationship with Jesus? Would you like to invite Christ into your life? But you actually, in your book, just put out some really great ways of suggesting it and doing and going about it. And this is what I love about the way you write. 
Well, it is difficult, and I'll be honest. I can tell stories and ask curious questions all day, but at some point, you have to invite a response. It's that moment when Jesus turns and says, okay, who do you say I am? Right, exactly. It will be a step of faith. And it's not scary in the sense that, like, oh, I'm going to be rejected. This is terrible. It's more you pivoting the conversation to say, what do you think about this? Who do you think Jesus is? What do you feel like this is a decision you want to make to invite the Lord into your life to receive the forgiveness of sin. Now, there's all sorts of spiritual tools you can use. We talk about having an app on your phone. We love God tools, and we kind of give all those tools to you. Obviously, I still love the Four Spiritual Laws or Knowing Mm -hmm. God Personally is the updated version. I love those. They're fantastic gospel presentations, and that's where the the training part comes in, where you do at some point need to understand this is what it means to receive the free gift of salvation. But before that, just remember the people in the New Testament who, you know, they they had great, almost like a great ministry, even though their skills weren't there. Think of the blind man who was like, I have no idea. I just know that <laughs> I've, I've been healed. Or I love the woman at the well, because if you remember in John 4, her big sort of evangelistic moment was her just going to her town and saying, look, you guys need to come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. She actually wasn't sure. You could tell she doesn't really have good theology. She's got a lot of questions. She probably didn't know what to say, but, you know, Jesus goes and stays in the town and the people are like, you know, first we believed because you said something, but now we know for ourselves. So evangelism is sort of like, look, I'm not sure if I can answer all your questions, but come and meet a man, you know, come and meet Jesus. It's sort of like that woman at the well. I know I can't answer all your questions, but you've got to meet this. You've got to meet this Savior. And you can, you know, begin reading the book of John together, which we did with what we thought were going to be hostile neighbors. And Ash just said, you know, we love talking about spiritual things. Would you guys be interested in getting together for pancakes on Saturday and reading the book of John with us? And our most hostile neighbor said, Ashley, I have been waiting for an invitation like this. I have been waiting. And so we gathered, we read the book of John. It's it's um, It's not hard and it's fun. And you may have people say, I'm not ready to talk about this or, and you can just be honest with people. So many times I say, I, like I share in the, in the book, the first time someone asked me about Jesus, I said, look, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to talk to you. <laughs> you know, oh, I just hysterical. said, I have no idea, but yeah. let's go through this together. I want to say what neighbor can say no to Heather and Ash's pancakes. Ash makes amazing pancakes. Yeah. There I you have go. to say. There you go. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Heather, we have a little bit of time left, and I would love for you to retell your story of the jealousy issue. Yes. Okay. It was a summer day in late July. I was overcome with jealousy and comparison, and I thought I was living the wrong life. I turned to Ephesians 2 and read the weirdest passage of Scripture that changed everything about me. It just says this, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, before that passage, it says that I'm dead in my transgressions and sins, but God, I'm made alive in Christ. And I'm reading this passage, and I was like, well, I know I'm alive in Christ, but how come I don't feel this weird sense of being seated with him? And that day, I said, okay, I'm seated at the greatest table with the greatest king. 
why am I still fighting to belong at this list of other tables that I'm trying to get an invitation for? The thin table, the wealthy table, the famous table, all these tables. That day, the Holy Spirit just pierced my heart and said, the table you've been waiting for is already here. Now start living like a seated person. And I realized that seated people live in the freedom of knowing, and I call them my three A's. They know they can just adore Jesus and radiate the beauty of the King. They have access to all the riches of God's kingdom, and they abide to bear the fruit God's ordained for their life. They adore access and abide, and they don't ever have to compare their lives again. They're already at the table they've been longing for all their life. Mm -hmm. And how has that been sustained in your life since that day? Since that, that's actually a great question, and it's the number one question I get when I tell an unbeliever that story. That's actually their first question. They say, so you felt seated with Jesus. How do you keep that feeling up? Mm -hmm. And I said, honestly, I have to remind myself every new morning. I tell the Lord every morning. I read five psalms a day, and I love connecting with Jesus through Ephesians, and I just say, Lord, I'm seated with you. Thank you. You're here with me. I'm in that secure place. And I just remind myself of the end of Ephesians 2 that said, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So I think I've got good works today. I don't need to compare them to anyone else who has her good works. Whatever God has planned for me, it's part of my sent identity. So now I'm seated and sent. But I do, Bill, I do remind myself almost every morning because Satan wants to steal that truth. Mm -hmm. Isn't it amazing to you that you've probably gone all your life and not really heard a lot of sermons on seated? I hadn't heard one. Nobody had used that word to to tell me who I was, that I was seated. I think it's a deep truth. It sets you free. Yeah. Well, I know in your book, Heather, and I want all my listeners to hear this, that if Christians sharing their faith is not oftentimes due to not being trained, but it's, it's, due to a lack of knowing who you are in Christ and that Jesus has sent you. So you need to know that you've been sent. So start asking questions, be curious, and you're going to have a lot of new results maybe you've never had before. Yes, and there's some fun things to do while you read the book. We have you make a list of five people in your life that don't know Jesus, and we talk about the seven ways to pray Mm -hmm. and different faith steps you can begin. So it's going to be easy and fun and something that you'll love to do with a small group or your church. Okay, and let's do this again, Heather. It's always uh, good to talk to you, and thank you so much. Yes, have a good evening. Yep. Dr. Heather Holloman has been my guest. Her book is called Sent, Living a Life That Invites Others to Jesus. You can go to Heather Holloman, H-O-L-L-E-R-M-A-N, Heather Holloman. She blogs daily, and you can see all of her books and learn more about her right there. We will take a short break and be back with more in just a minute.
Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.